0: Today's episode of The Wire, Way Down in the Hole, on the Ringer Podcast Network, is brought to you by World Central Kitchen. Their relief team is working across America to safely distribute, individually packaged, fresh meals in communities that need support. They're now serving tens of thousands of meals daily in some of our biggest cities like New York and L.A., and they're launching initiatives across America to deliver fresh, hot meals to hospitals and clinics on the front lines while keeping local Restaurants in business as well. Fantastic.
1: You can directly help these heroes in hospitals and clinics who are fighting for us. And you can help keep your local restaurants alive. Go to TheRinger.com backslash WCK to donate. Please, we're trying to raise $250,000 and if you have the means, it's an unbelievably great and useful cause that helps our hospital heroes, emergency workers, and local restaurants. Please give whatever you can. The money goes directly to the World Central Kitchen and it's a charitable donation. Once again, that's theringer.com backslash WCK.
0: Witnesses lying. Witnesses paid off. Witnesses backing up on their story. Can you blame them? Not really. Every now and then we visit the projects. They live there.
1: I am so excited, um, as I am every time we do this you know, particular podcast. I, I know people are thinking like, damn, I'm so tired of you saying you're so excited. But no, no, I really am just because we get to discuss one of... I think if I had to list my five favorite scenes from The Wire, that the one that happens in this particular episode would be, I'm not going to say is one, but it ain't five. It ain't five. All right. And that would be uh, we're in episode four now. Old cases. And it's, it's the fuck scene. And that doesn't yes. sound like how you think it is. <laughs>
0: right. Yeah, because a lot of people going, yo, what is you Jamil, like, like really loosening up? We know to get in. Yeah, but no, the scene, there's one scene uh, that goes down in the history of, uh, of The Wire where the only two words in the scene are fuck and motherfucker. And that seems like uh, it wouldn't work. But when you watch the scene, it is masterfully ep- executed. Every single fuck or motherfucker, you know exactly what they're trying to say uh they're working a crime scene um and like it's one of the best scenes in wire history and it's one of the most important scenes in wire history
1: yes i i would agree so in old cases what was it about this episode that struck you
0: it's one of the finest pieces of writing that i've ever seen on television uh number one it starts off in terms of the first major thing that happens when bodie comes back uh from his daring and houdini like escape from yes, Boys using, Village. Using a mop bucket. Who knew? Right, using the mop <laughs> bucket. All right, they disbelieved him, let him walk on out. Good job. You know, D'Angelo does something that uh, we really haven't seen him do very much. He tells a lie. He's dishonest with Bodie about having killed um, the woman that kind of ties everything together. You ever seen a city jail, nigga? You ever caught a body? i'm the one who just got home remember eight months over on eager street with a body on me nigga yeah you got the one yeah the one you know about man y'all little motherfuckers need to ask around yo out near the county right on the high end of the east side they got these apartments out there right so there was this little shorty who used to stay out there i ain't seen a female that fine since i gotta say shorty was right another thing that happens is we're finally introduced to one of the main characters of the show that is going to exist in every uh, season of the show. Um, Actually, one of the only characters that stays the same throughout the show, which is The Wire itself. The Wire itself, being able to get up on a wire, is a very concrete character in this show. And this is the first time, this is the first episode that they're actually able to do that. And so we start seeing the tactics that they have to use to surveil the Barstow organization right here in old cases.
1: It's interesting because it it makes it, and I don't want to mischaracterize what you said, but in your mind, like D'Angelo, when he told the story to the youngins about DJ Crescent, that he was, he was fronting. And which is something, you know, obviously we haven't seen him do. Was he fronting though? Or was he trying to kind of send them the message or wanting them to get a lesson that eventually this game is going to force you to do something? That's not just uncomfortable, it's too small and too too little of a word, but it's gonna force you to do some shit that's like reprehensible. Was that the lesson he was trying to tell him? Because I guess that's the way I kind of took it. It's like he mm. was also trying to say, yo, I know y'all might see me as this, you know, philosopher dude that'll go get you a, a lake trout sub if you need it. <laughs> but right. and I know I might and I don't know if he felt that way because they had just been the victims of a stick up. And it was on him. And he's like, well, I got to flex on these fools to let them know that I'm still the man that I'm still in charge. Or was he trying to tell them that eventually this game going to cost you in some kind of way? So I guess I always took it kind of that latter way as opposed to looking at him like him trying to be, um, you know, bold and and put on some bravado he doesn't really possess.
0: Here's the thing about that. Bodie never respected D'Angelo. Bodhi challenges D'Angelo from the beginning. D'Angelo had to tell Bodhi before about how he killed someone. When Bodhi comes back, the reason why that story happens is because he directly looks at D'Angelo and says, yo, if it had been you who had gone to Boy's Village, you'd still be there. Bodhi never hesitates to call D'Angelo weak whenever he can. Um, And... D'Angelo then has to go into a, yo, I was courtside for this amount of time and blah, 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 blah. And then he says, I caught a body. And he says, no. You know, he says, yeah, you got the one. You got the one body. And D'Angelo then fronts and says, no, I got more than one body. This episode is also the other episode where we realize that D'Angelo just is, is comically and tragically out of sorts. D'Angelo had put in a little bit of work, but people didn't really believe him. Almost like what Hope said, we don't believe you. You need more people. So he told that story to kind of try to pull a little respect from Bodie. And when he told the story, you know, Bodie kind of uh, kind of gave him that in in the interim. He, and he D'Angelo is always the guy who knows about what's going on, but never is really a fully part of it. Uh, so, uh, and that's how we kind of introduced to that. So I looked at it as I definitely looked at it as him fronting. Uh, but once again, he's fronting so that he can maintain the control he needs to effectively run the pit. He can't have the guys in the pit like looking at him like he's soft or um, or sort of not respecting his authority. So if you got to put a little sauce on it, you got to put a little sauce on it. And that's what he did.
1: So I wonder what Bodhi resents D'Angelo more for. Does he resent him because he feels like he only got the position that he's in because of nepotism, because of Avon? Or does... Or is some of this resentment because, you know, I mean, it's I'm sure the life lessons. Yeah, they're great to maybe those of us, you know, obviously watching, but just putting yourself in their shoes. Do you really want this dude to be lecturing you all the time about how to act, how to conduct yourself, larger life lessons? So to me, that is on top of him thinking that D'Angelo is just generally soft. I think he resents him for these two other things, mostly because he feels like he's not a real soldier because he didn't earn the stripes and didn't go through the process the way somebody like him did.
0: I think of a line from the movie, Analyze This, which you never thought would be brought up in a while. Look at that. Podcast. Okay. Yeah.
1: Deep, deep in your IMDb bag.
0: <laughs> deep in my IMDb bag, where Robert De Niro is talking to Billy Crystal and he's talking about all the guys in the room because Billy is going to have to go in this room and act like a mobster. And he says, listen, these guys aren't smart, but they're cunning. And it's not the same thing. Like, you're going into the jungle. They can sense this. They can feel this. Like, this is their habitat, their element. And if you're going to go in there and you're going to purport to be one of them, then you're going to have to do a certain, th- a, a couple of things authentically or they're going to be able to, to not, like, see through you, they're going to be able to smell through you and sense through you and feel through you. I think it's as simple as that Bodie never got that feel from D'Angelo. D'Angelo didn't walk like it. He didn't talk like it. He didn't sound like it. Whereas the rest of the kids like Putin Wallace, they looked at D'Angelo um, as being uh, uh, as having such proximity to the top and having su- such a different view on life that there was something about those guys, those kids who were less seasoned um, than Bodhi was, uh, and they could appreciate something about it. Bodhi didn't appreciate anything but authority uh, and realness, and he felt something off about D'Angelo. When D'Angelo first gets there, I think like the first thing that Bodhi says to him is like, you must have really fucked up if they put you down here. So he didn't even, in any type of way, um, act as if, he had any sort of adulation for D'Angelo Barsdale. On the contrary, when you see string or stinkum or weebay or any of those guys come through there, Bodie is completely different. He's almost docile. He's almost, he's very, very like um, is he? subjugates himself when he sees those guys. You Stink, what up? We bae, what up? And those guys, they play them sometimes. Like, you know, one time he tried to dap Stringer up and Stringer ignored him. You remember that? Like, like yeah. you know, give me your phone. Yeah,
1: it is interesting that D'Angelo, it, he was always kind of fighting for respect within just the whole organization. I mean, Everyone. the only one who, had, who even respected him a little bit, if you want to, I don't even know if you would call what Avon felt for him, respect. It was
0: love. It, I don't it think was, it was respect was at all. It was love. Though,
1: or, or was it obligation?
0: No, don't get me wrong. D'Angelo was good at his job. He was a good drug dealer. And I think, you know, that was enough for, for Avon to keep kind of keep him around and kind of justify it. But yeah, it was obligation and love. That's what he felt. I don't know. He He loved the boy. Um, I, I don't think that he ever really looked at him like he looked at some of the other guys that were surrounded that he was surrounded with. No, I don't think so at all.
1: Brief recap uh, for everybody watching along. Uh, so your boy Bodie uh, got the shit beat out of him by the cops after he fired on the old man, and go. he is now in juvenile detention center, but only briefly because he manages to escape right before, uh, you know, police brutality one and two, Herc and Carver, yeah. <laughs> before they come. Because they're they have this mastermind plan, as if they could ever come up with one that they're gonna go inter interrogate Bodhi, get him to crack open the whole case and you know, kind of save the day. But that shit doesn't quite work out the way they anticipate. Um, Avon is putting more pressure on his lieutenants, on his soldiers to find Omar who has robbed him in the last episode, who robbed his stash house. And speaking of Omar, one of the biggest reveals of season one happens here is when we find out that Omar is is gay. On the cop side of things, uh, things are heating up a little bit. Uh, Phelan, Judge Phelan, McNulty's best friend, puts pressure on Burrell to, you know, to come up with a real case and not just be out here, you know, trying to tantalize him with these street rips and trying to make it appear as if actual policing is going on. No, he wants the Barksdale's because he wants to find out what happened to his witness. However, I feel uh I think it's fair to say the entire episode is hinged on an old case. Hence why it's called that, and that is McNulty and Bunk, they reinvestigate the homicide of Deirdre Crescent. And her murder winds up being a very key piece into how the Barksdale are Barksdales are eventually bought down. This is kind of that first, I think you called it threads before. This is one of the major threads that unravels for this organization as it is with any criminal enterprise, you know, I guess to, to use the uh, analogy that's often used, like with Al Capone, it wasn't about the murders. It wasn't the murders that got him. It was tax evasion. It's right. always, a, it, was, it was always a little shit. It's always something you overlook that winds mm-hmm. up bringing your whole shit to a stop. But right. the character, we're going to be taking a deep dive into this episode, which makes so much sense given, how this episode kind of played out Um, and just the details we learned. One of the major reveals in this uh, in old cases is that Omar is gay. And I was trying to remember what I thought when it first became apparent to me. I don't think I even had a reaction necessarily. I was just more or less surprised. And I think I was thinking of it more as a writer and as a TV person, even though I wasn't in TV, like, wow, that's a really daring chance to take in a story like this. I just want to give people a little bit of backstory about it. So Omar is a composite of six different people that Ed Burns and David Simon know, knew in their travails as both a, you know, Ed Burns as a homicide detective and David Simon as somebody covering homicides in Baltimore and immersed in that life with Ed Burns. So this is a composite guy of six guys that were all stick up men. And it was a lot. It was one particular person that he drew from this, a guy named Donnie. And the way they described him is that he was he was a gentleman. He didn't curse. So that, you know, you that was another little fun fact. You can repeat at part even though I haven't gotten a trivia, is that Omar didn't say a lot of cuss words. And I think that right. was like in, on purpose to be part of that character.
0: He admonishes Brandon for cursing too much.
1: Correct. Exactly. So Mm -hmm. this is part of the character that they had, the real life character that they had come to know on the streets. And so he had a running buddy and they were pretty tight and they used to go around, stick up different Baltimore drug dealers. They were so tight that David Simon, when he was reading about them and learning about them, he assumed they were gay. It was never a thing. It was never said or whatever. And Ed Burns corrected him was like, no, I mean, he didn't challenge him on why he wrote Omar as a gay character, but Omar being gay was basically based off a misunderstanding. He, he just assumed, he just assumed based off what he read that he was gay. And David Simon also says that, you know, he knows that it was a rather homophobic world that he was, you know, writing about and, and and The Wire generally is because, I mean, you can hear how they obviously talk about Omar and just what different Kima. things they respond. Yeah. And, and about Kima. But he felt like it would just be disingenuous not to act as if they probably weren't a part of as as if gays and lesbians were not a part of this world somehow. They had to be. Sure numbers mm-hmm. tells you that that had to be the case. So... He knew black female um or he knew he said lesbian cops, not necessarily black lesbian cops, but he knew of lesbian um police officers because he, you know, he felt like that was sort of a character he encountered often. And then he just kind of assumed just based off of reading these profiles and this information of the of the people that he was basing this character off of, he felt like he was gay, that Omar yeah. was gay and therefore he wrote it. So um In TV history, I mean, this is an iconic character for a lot of reasons. I mean, I know a lot of people get lost in the carnage, but that's a bold chance to take in 2002, even though we're still in, you know, it's the 2000s and things are much different than they were prior to that. But it's a bold chance to take because you're not talking about somebody who is, you know, a lawyer, a gay lawyer. You're talking about a gay gangster who is not closeted in any way, who is affectionate with the people he's involved with, so it's not only something that you know; it's something you're reminded of constantly that this guy is gay. Um, just for you, once that reveal happens, um, if you can remember, how did you feel about this character that being a part of this character?
0: I remember in the way that Omar kisses Brandon, um, because in the scene where he imagines him, he says. I don't like to hear all of that, especially coming out of such a pretty mouth. And then he looks at him. I'm thinking, okay, what's happening here? And then and that, that's what I was... I'm going to be honest with you. I'm 22, I'm 22, 23. At the time, I'm thinking, what is this? He's like, that's interesting. He said this homeboy got a pretty mouth. That's, that's you know, wow. That's like very affectionate, <laughs> you know. And then right. he touches on mouth. I'm like, oh, wow. Okay, here we go. <laughs> and then Omar doesn't just kiss Brandon. He kisses the Fuck out of him he doesn't just kiss him He Spike Lee movie kisses him because we all know that in Spike Lee movies love scenes are a little bit more aggressive Spike likes to shoot the love scenes He like he and I'm like wow I'm like whoa now i tell you why that was a big deal you're talking about uh we we, we tend to judge things through the lens that we're currently in now um And now there is a big play, rightly so, for diversity and having all different sort of lifestyles and perspectives represented on television just wasn't the case then. Like, even if you look uh, at other shows that were on HBO at the time, you know, obviously they were gay characters on Sex and the City, but those characters were largely, unfortunately, not trying to diss anyone who loves Sex and the City, they were caricatures of the gay best friend um and you saw you how had, they
1: fit in that world we're talking about women sl- who were in the fashion who were into right. a certain new york lifestyle so it was no stretch that they would be friends with with people with men who were gay or women who were gay like that was no stretch at all
0: right and in, in you know in other shows like the sopranos it was you know obviously within that culture is also a gigantic taboo so later on that was used after the wire after the wire the, the 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 Vito storyline became a big deal in the Sopranos. The Wire in my opinion directly innovated for that storyline to end up on Good Morning America. They directly kicked down a wall for that to have happened. Obviously, you know, the, the there was a revelation of Vito being gay seasons before that storyline took off, but still I think that chance was taken by the wire and it meant a lot because omar was going to be the character that in a lot of ways was by far the most gangster he had the best code he he was the one uh that kept it the realest he was the one everyone was afraid of he was the one that was the most deadly with the shotgun he was the coolest. He's the one that walks into Prop Joe's store, demands a bunch of money from Pop Joe, then like holds everybody up, and then makes Joe fix his clock as well. That was coming from a character who was gay. And a lot of the homies that would end up watching the show with me, it was one of the first times that I can remember them Actually putting somebody's sexual orientation on the back burner for who the person was. Yeah. And like it, it was it was a situation where when we talked to when we talked about Omar, no one ever brought up the fact that Omar was gay, even though he was really, really, really out there with it in terms of like on the show kissing love scenes there was not not they didn't even fuck around with it where they did a half hearted look or grab but no they wanted you to know he was gay and he loved sex with hot young guys omar always had a little dime with him you know what i mean like he always had a hot young male with him um and so that's what he liked and it just it, it like amongst homies that i knew had we weren't evolving to that point yet it, it, ne- it never was a thing. So the character, like you said, wasn't just cool. He was groundbreaking in so many ways. He broke so much ground. You can't love The Wire and not love Omar Little. It's impossible. So do
1: you think, well, it, it's, it's, I'm I'm struck by the fact that you said that the, the guys that you knew that, you know, watched it, like they never brought it up. Most of the people I know who watched The Wire didn't really bring it up. Most men. But, however, there was definitely a contingent of men that I knew who felt like it was completely unrealistic that there is no way that a guy who was gay, I don't care how many shotguns that he has. and i and I realized that this is projection that they're thinking like, oh, ain't no way some gay dude gonna be running my hood like that. you know, i I understand it. But I also did get a lot of conversations about that about like, was it realistic? um and to me it's a it's a it's a really a um a tremendous compliment to the writing that you can have people who are probably a lot of people that this show drew pretty maybe macho in their beliefs and certainly people who grew up in environments like that if they thought about them like i don't remember anybody being out in my neighborhood and i lived in a fairly rough neighborhood a, a few different rough neighborhoods don't remember a single gay person ever. it would be, be people whispering about certain people. You know, that would be that, but even the people they whispered about who were so obviously gay, they would be very closeted and you just knew like okay, he's probably gay but w- whatever. Um but nobody and so I think that was another challenge that they brilliantly handled is getting people to not only buy into Omar but making him a staple of the show, making him mm-hmm. the hood you know, kind of Robin, you know what I'm yeah. saying? It's like yeah. that is, that's another level of writing that you're able to do if you're able to make people kind of espouse some pretty deeply held beliefs beliefs about who and what kind of person is supposed to be that character to make them forget about that. That says everything about David Simon and Ed Burns.
0: Yeah, without a doubt. I think two things. I think I knew, I like, there were guys... From the neighborhood and, and homies that had a problem with Omar's character, but it wasn't because he was gay. It was because some of the ways that the rest of the hood would bow down to Omar. We didn't yeah, get to that little I bit heard later. a lot of that too. A lot of people just don't didn't believe that a character like Omar Little. Listen, we all had guys that ripped and ran. We all had guys that did things like that. But you didn't have any guys that could walk around, not that I knew of, in the hood in their pajamas with no piece on them and just have people dropping stashes out of yeah, windows. It's the, I think it's people have bags. Right, I think people had more of a problem or or they they would be more up in arms and they were up in arms about something than that. I'm not saying that you didn't hear, yo, you'd hear sometimes, you know, oh man, if he just wasn't, well, whatever, sometimes you would hear that. But in the grand scheme of things, it it was just one component and one facet of who Omar Little was as a character. Now it's a very important facet because Omar's love uh, drives him in this season, it's Omar's love for Brandon that is going to wage the war against the Barksdales, right? Omar is best uh, used as a character. Where he has an emotional reason for doing what it is that he's doing. And his beef with the Barstells comes from his love from another man. And you, that right there, the fact that that exists uh, throughout this season and in seasons uh, after this, is an emotional tethering that you can't ignore. You can't ignore the fact that Omar is gay. You can't, you can't put it to the side. It's there. It just ended up becoming uh, something that people didn't, whatever, for whatever reason, like really harp on.
1: It's also interesting too that when you even hear, okay, so in 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 this episode, Avon and the, the crew, they learn that Omar is gay. And of course, you know, right. some of the typical insults you you hear, but what I always thought was, was fascinating was Omar, um, whenever they talked about him, they might drop the F word like once or twice, but they mostly called him a cocksucker, which was interesting yeah. to me. Yeah. And I was like, I wondered if that was done on purpose so that there wouldn't be an overuse of that word, you know, of a slur.
0: Of, you mean the F word?
1: Right. The F word. Yeah, like, he's not Good. called that actually a lot. And you would, I mean, I think Some people might believe in that kind of environment dealing with, you know, these particular types of people that that would be just that would basically be his first name, (laughs) you know. Right. No, yeah, no, no. And it wasn't.
0: I mean, to 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 be honest with you. After a while, even with the characters on the show, the fact that Omar was gay was much less important to them than the fact that he was getting up in their shit all the time. That they right. couldn't put a bullet on them that they couldn't put a location on them I mean after a while your like your your slurs are gonna fall on deaf ears if someone is consistently busting your ass every right. time you come <laughs> you, you square off against them so uh even with them, it became like a um uh, uh even with the characters in the show, the respect for the character became such a big deal for them that uh his sexual orientation or you know his sexual preference uh was not the headline with Omar Little that's not to say that they did anything at all to downplay it they didn't at all Omar is just gay that's the way that it goes and by the way where I'm from you know it is there's a lot of guys in and out of the game that you would hear stuff about they knew who was gay man like they they like you know what I mean like they they knew the guys that w- whatever um, and so a lot of this stuff even even in the sopranos, when they're having a conversation when they're sitting around and Tony and them are having a conversation and they're talking about Vito, Tony says, let's be honest, he's not the first hmm. um and 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 that was when Tony was trying to make to to make people kind of get over it, so I think all of those things, plus the fact. That he's the smartest, fiercest, uh, most deadly, bravest. Um, and in a lot of ways, the moral compass of the criminal element of the show. Uh, it All of that really lean. And to have that is, is bravo to them. And it's also when I say bravo to them, I'm not giving them an award because Omar is gay. Uh, it, 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 it's it's that they didn't overwrite or underwrite the character because of his, uh, of his sexual orientation. They just didn't. They wrote a bomb ass character who was gay. They did it unafraid. Um, and they did it right there in your face. Like pe- everyone should be able to live their life. So uh, a couple
1: interesting notes about this. So originally they had only written Omar in for seven episodes. So mm-hmm. he actually was supposed to kind of get handled um in either season one or season two and the other thing like you mentioned about the love scenes that the that they never uh why they didn't have to rely on him being gay they didn't make him being gay a storyline it was just part of who he was and that was just the backdrop and that's what it was however it was michael k williams who plays omar who challenged the writers to bring in those love scenes because um, as he told them when he said he would read the descriptions uh, you know in the script and it'd be it would say things like Omar rubs the boy's lips Omar rubs the boy's hair you know Omar holds the boy's hand and he, I guess he told them you know and this is his exact quote because this is in, uh, in the book Jan- Jonathan Abrams great book about the wire all the pieces matter you know he said to them don't gay people fuck you know what I mean don't they kiss don't they grab each other <laughs> We got to step it up. <laughs> so it was him Whoa. that was like, "Yo, we we need to play this shit like it's real." And um, when they did that first kind of kiss, apparently him and the actor uh, who played Brandon, whose name is is completely escaping me right now, um, that Brandon suggestion or their their collaboration was that he didn't want him to see it coming, and he was like, "Just don't tell me. Don't just do it." And then we can just kind of go from it, go with it from there. Um, So, I mean, I thought it was revolutionary in a lot of ways. And I like the balance of having a depiction of what Omar's life is like as a a gay male, black gay male gangster, and having Kima as a black female uh, lesbian police officer. So you get two different ends of the the spectrum because you have Kima in this kind of settled world of even though, you know, being a police officer is not necessarily settled, but in terms of her love life, like she's got uh, you know, I think Cheryl's her name. She's got her partner and she's in this like relationship that's um, you know, loving and is more like a I don't think they were actually married, but it was it's like a marriage essentially. And so you have this balance constantly of like Omar and and looking at, you know, her and even they use her later on in the series as a interesting contrast to uh some of the heterosexual marriages on <laughs> on the show yeah. and how she uh-huh. eventually falls into some of the same uh kind of traps now i did note and correct me if i'm wrong though in thinking about omar's love interest that he had over the course of of these five seasons um all of his love interests kind of he had a type and
0: i don't know yeah. why he had a type or like except for I would just second, love- the second the the second guy wasn't as Well, you know, what what before I ju- what 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 was the what's Omar's type? What do you think Omar's type is? What are you saying? What's the type?
1: I mean, he like pretty boys, yeah. light skinned, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you got to put the skinned yeah. on there. Like, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? He got a type. He like, you know, he 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 had, so? he like that Al, Al be sure Christopher Williams type of, you know, like he got a type. So
0: So, I mean, look, I, people got types. Joe Budden got a type. You know what I mean? Like, 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 like and people got types. You see people, they got types. Like, Omar definitely had a type. But you know what else? You know what else you had to do if you were gonna be Omar's little pretty boy? You had to be fierce, you had to be ride or die, you had to be oh, willing for sure. to pick, pick that pistol up. Omar, I love I liked Omar because of that, man. Omar wasn't just see, and this is this is something else. Like, the the fearlessness in the writing comes from the fact that like um uh, like Omar's character, uh, like being gay, it it it's not used like as a trope, you know, it's not used like if Omar was the gay, if Omar was the character that he was gay character. Right. And then he had some pretty boy on the other side of town that wasn't in the game, that he just paid for, and they were having all types of stuff. That's a trope. That's a trope, yeah. That's a trope. That's like a cliche. No, this is a guy who, if you're going to be down with him, if you're going to run you got to run these streets with him. It's like a real thing. It's an actual thing. It's a fully formed character where his homosexuality is a part of that um, and not the entire thing. And I think other television shows, whether they write the characters, you know, uh, foreign or whether they write the, write the character's black or whether they write the character's female. They use that as the thing that they keep coming back to the why I Never did that. But yeah. So yeah, man, you had to, Omar had a type of little pretty boy, but you had to be, you had to be handy with the steel, earn your keep. You know what I mean?
1: (laughs) No, I mean, he definitely got some gangsters and actually to be honest, that was a, that was a trope that wasn't even followed for the heterosexual characters. Like most of, Mm -hmm. um, maybe with the exception of say uh, on the cop side, because you would kind of expect them to ex- to face some tension, um, you know, in some of their relationships because of what they do. But generally speaking on the, on the criminal side, there wasn't a whole lot of significant others that weren't buying in. Right. <laughs> there wasn't a whole lot of that. You had to that be part of it. Yeah. Yeah. You had to be part of it. And they like accepted that responsibility. And, you know, uh, the reason that, uh, Deidra Crescent winds up in a in a body bag is because she was trying to flex, and she should she have been went too flexing. far.
0: She went Damn. too far.
1: Now she Damn. probably wouldn't have done anything, but the fact that she brought up that she might go to
0: the cops now she, she got bad. Deidre had bad friends. Yeah, I know her friend tried to tell her, but Deidre had bad friends. No fucking way. You can't even play with somebody like that. Like no, that. Not you, somebody like that go Deirdre to the again. cops. If you you could say I'm a text your other girl. I think that probably would have fly. But if you say, I'm going to go to the cops, nah, they can't even, in a situation like that, they can't even think there's a possibility that you might do that or you've signed your own death warrant. One last thing I want to say about Omar Little in this particular episode is, this is also the episode um, where not only us, but the cops learn that Omar is... Probably the smartest character in the show. Now, you could argue that it's Lester. You could argue that it's McNulty. I don't think that McNulty compares to Lester in any way as a detective. Uh, You could argue at times that that it's Presbyterian. But in terms of being able to see the street, being able to navigate both sides of it, get what he want from everybody, there's no one that does that better and that did that better in The Wire than Omar Little. He had, he had all the connections in the street. He had all the connections in the precinct. Um, he had enough people looking out for him to where he could do his stuff and he had enough people scared of him, uh, where he didn't have to do some of it and he still got what he wanted. And I think this is the first one. This is the first episode where you, you kind of see that you kind of see Omar's ability to kind of navigate this world and just the, the, the masterful way uh, in which he conducted this kind of street symphony.
1: Yeah, he played the game the right way. And I think that's mm-hmm. why, despite what his character ultimately does, you know, robbing drug dealers. I know a whole lot of people ain't going to feel sympathy for drug dealers anyway right. in that case. But um, at the same time, he even, he, he even though he robbed them, he kind of had a respect for what they did, and he understood mm-hmm. the inner, inner workings of it. And because he could always, you know, like a good point guard, he could always see the play develop before it actually developed. That that is why he was able to stay not just one step um, ahead of them, but sometimes two or three steps. Mm -hmm. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back more way down in the hole.
0: Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I wanted to tell you about a new podcast on the ringer podcast network that we are launching this week. It's called TV concierge. It's only available on Spotify. These are 12 to 15 minute mini podcasts that review the latest TV shows streaming on Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, HBO, Showtime, FX, Apple TV, wherever else. We'll preview new shows that are launching. We'll break down the biggest shows that just launched. We'll review the biggest binge watch seasons that drop as they happen. It's our new TV concierge podcast from the Ringer Podcast Network. Think of it like a little bit of a playlist. Pick and choose the ones you want to listen to. It's available only on Spotify.
1: Moving on to our best scenes here. You heard me talk about it at the top. My best scene uh-huh. is the fuck scene, as in the scene in which Bunk, uh, Bunk and McNulty, they go uh, and reinvestigate the murder of Deirdre Cresson. Uh, uh-huh. Key piece in this whole thing. And just by using two words, fuck and motherfuck, they were able to immediately figure out what happened despite some pretty shitty-ass police work Done by one of the other detectives. Fuck, 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 the fuck. Fuck. fuck, fuck, So of course I counted. I counted how many fucks and motherfucks there were in this.
0: You and counted how many fucks were given.
1: I count. I actually did count how many fucks were given.
0: It was for the 29. first time in Jamel's life. <laughs> yes. She actually, for the first time in her life, she actually gave. A fuck, like she counted, like fucks were given for the first time. you guys, you guys follow Jamil on Twitter. Like this is this if you know that this is the first time any fucks have ever been given. How many fucks were given, Jamil?
1: It was twenty nine fucks given. Okay, <laughs> it was twenty nine fucks given for motherfuckers. Mm. Now, what what is so impressive? You talk about good acting. You're given two words to make a scene, just work. They not only make it work; they turn it into one of the best scenes of not just season one, but the entire series. And the showed, signature
0: scenes and one of the
1: signature one of the signature scenes. And it, it gets back to just like when we saw Buck and McNulty in the interrogation room. Uh, like they have a rhythm. You know, they mm-hmm. they they're a good duo, and this is part of what makes their partnership special. I think I was also impressed by the variation of fucks and fuck. how they were able to emote each fuck to make it mean a different yeah. thing. Like it's a verbal yeah. word. Like it was like "Oh fuck."
0: "Oh fuck." fuck. Like they were able to and, know, then and, the, and then it then sometimes it was like fuck 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 fuck, "Fuck fuck 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 fuck." And then it was like "Fuck." "Oh fuck." "Fuck." "Fuck." Oh, "Fuck." "Fuck." "Motherfucker." Fuck. Like the inflection is like really really key to what they're, what they were doing. And they, they made that fuck scene work. Yeah, they they did. Then it was the distress fuck. Fuck me. Like it
1: was like they got all of the different uh, variations um, of fuck in there. So I, I just, I can't imagine what has to go through one's mind to write a scene. Like I'm going to use two words and that's going to, that's going to be it. Um, Was there anything else that kind of struck you about that, that particular scene?
0: I love that scene. It's not my favorite scene of the episode. Mm. My, like, there are a couple of episodes, a couple of scenes in the episode I like. I love her talking to uh, Bodhi's grandmother. I'm sorry for cursing at the door. I mean, um, I couldn't see that it was only you. Preston came to me
1: when my daughter died. He was four years old. But even
0: then, I knew he was angry. Love it. Yeah, Love that. that scene. was a good scene. The Avon basketball scene is a classic scene. You know what the cracker motherfuckers do? When they kill a deer? Or like when they go out killing animals or whatnot? Got them on the front of the truck, tied up, stretched out, so everybody could see it. You feel me? I'm serious, that's what I want. I want that motherfucker on display. We send a message to the courtyard about this motherfucker, so people know we ain't playing. Shout out to Idris. You. You threw that lob. I know how many times it took to get that So you know I got, you know, I got, here, you know I got a fuckboy alert on that, right? I know, I know you do. I know you do. <laughs> yeah, okay. I know I like, like I know Continue. like I, I, probably that brother's not from here. Probably took him a couple times to get that lob up there. Um, but that's just a good scene cuz that's the that's one of the only scenes we get of that classic Scarface Nino Brown uh Al Capone and Untouchables type of deal where it's the head of the organization sitting around talking to his lieutenants with the bar sales. We don't get very much of that. Type of stuff from the Wire. Uh, that might be the only scene where it's him and all his top guys, and he's talking. I just, I just love that scene. Um, also, you know, Wood got to show off his little chest. Shout out to Wood. Wood probably had to. Wood probably, was, uh, you know, that wasn't above the rim. That was probably years after that. Wood had to build up to that. Uh, but the scene that I love the most is Bubbles' ride to the suburbs with McNulty. You're and leave it to Beaverland. Are you taking me? I'm late for something. I'll drop you after on the way back downtown. What's it late for? Soccer. Suck what? The character of Bubbles from the beginning is so beautifully tortured. Bubbles wants more. Bubbles wants more. Bubbles is a worker. Bubbles goes out. Bubbles becomes enterprising. He's willing to work for stuff. And they talk about this and kind of seeing the other world. He hasn't given up. He hasn't just said like, no, he's a low bottom dope fiend. He knows he is, right? He doesn't understand why he hasn't been struck with the bug yet, the disease, we all, it's HIV. He doesn't understand why he's still alive, but he knows as long as he stays alive, there's more out there for him. Like there's a whole world outside of this. And when he takes that ride with Minolti, you can see it on his face. There's like, damn, he's not thinking, yo, I, he's not looking at these houses thinking like, like Donnell was thinking, yo, I can crack one of these houses and get into one of these houses and doing all of that. Sure, he might have done something like that. But what he's looking at when he's taking this ride is he's thinking, how far is my life from their lives? What am I missing out on? and that's a theme in that character that's going to eventually lead to his redemption. He is going to redeem himself. He's going to demand more of himself uh and 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 develop the discipline in order to access that and you see it right there. And every time I see him, I think about all the people out there in a real way who want more from their lives and whatever's holding them down, whatever it is. And you see it in his face. It's such a well-acted scene. Uh by Andre Royal. Such an amazingly acted scene without doing really, really too much. Man, look, I'm gonna tell you something else. Last thing on that. Every time I watch these fucking shows, you Emmy Golden Globes motherfuckers, y'all got some nerve, man. Y'all got a lot of fucking nerve. Okay? Y'all better be glad there wasn't no Twitter then. We'd have been all yeah. up in your ass. <laughs> right. You like you, y'all got some nerve with how well this fucking show was put together. For the show to have no rec- no recognition on those levels. It's really insane. And that's just one of the scenes that stuck out to me. It's my favorite well, scene uh, in this episode. But, but
1: we can just stay on that soap, soapbox for a minute. Because here's the thing. Is you may have had The Wire to me. Even in a season that I consider to be the letdown season of the whole series. There was never a bad episode. Never, never. a bad one. There was never one where it was not written well. It was never one where it wasn't acted well, like never a bad moment Mm -hmm. with the more technical parts, you know, kind of of the craft itself. So that's why that is such a slap in the face that they only got two Emmy nominations and they were both for writing. It's like, what? It kind of reminds me of what color purple got shut out. Right. I think they lost uh, out of Africa, 11 uh, Academy Awards didn't get now one, nothing, <laughs>
0: right? Yeah, you know you, you know the, the story on that is that the Academy didn't like Steven Spielberg. Wow.
1: Yeah, it's like they, they were
0: taking, at, the, at that particular time, I guess, Spielberg and some of the other young guns, the young guns, Spielberg, Coppola, De Palma, all of those guys had come in and kind of fucked up the studio system, and they were mavericks, yeah! Uh, and the Academy was really kind of taking it out on Spielberg and fucking them over, so... And Margaret Avery didn't get a chance to walk up. Do you know what a moment that would have been for the culture? I'm saying.
1: You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, all right, we got deprived of this moment because somebody else was was on some bullshit. The other thing about Bubbles, um, and you've been really good at identifying the moral compasses for them show. So we have, Kima to me is the moral compass of the cop world. It's, it's her. And mm. then for the drug world, as you just pointed out a few moments ago, it's Omar. Um, mm-hmm. as in I should say I'm sorry the criminal world for the attic world is totally bubs like it's bubbles yeah. for sure Um, yeah. because not just from a work ethic standpoint but he has a creed that he's living by as well even though he knows my life's fucked up I am a fuck up you know I know shit is uh, kind of you know the writings on the wall for me is just in, in so many ways but it's still just certain principles that he just lives by and a lot of snitches or informants, they could have mailed that shit in with the police. Like, Bubs is so committed, because even in this episode, he's still dropping knowledge. Like, when he told O'Keema about um, not knowing who Omar's brother was.
0: Boy, well, the tower said it was Omar and his crew. Omar? Who's he? You ain't no Omar? Omar the teller. Been ripping and vibing out here for years now. See, fierce? So that nigga don't play.
1: Got a last name?
0: Just Omar. You don't need no last name.
1: Who's his family?
0: Remember No Hard Anthony? Came up with him. They're brothers.
1: No Hard Anthony?
0: Miss Kimber, do not tell me you don't remember No Hard Anthony. Damn, girl. What time you been policing that all these years? Right now, I am personally ashamed to be your snitch.
1: How is it you don't know? You the cops, right? Yeah. But he, yeah. he like, breaks down... All of that, he told him where Omar's van was. I mean, like, yeah. <laughs> Bubbles continues to be a grade A, top level, historically great snitch.
0: <laughs> yeah, he's the litmus test of how far the cops are away from the street. Because even when Omar and, and, uh, and McNulty and Kima and Brandon are talking, you know, Omar says, I know you got good information. Uh, you know, Bubbles know who who, uh, who Bird is, so the cops feel like as much as they know, they don't know shit, and they're they them looking into that world. It really comes in a lot of ways through Bubbles, man. If the Boxdales wouldn't have fucked over Johnny, things would have been a lot different.
1: The, what you said about like how the cops don't know as much as they think they do, even though they're on the streets every day, they're talking to sources and you know trying to get a feel for them. And it reminded me of one of my three favorite lines from this episode, uh, which is when McNulty says, Every now and then we visit the projects, they live there. It's still a disconnect um, for them. But I, I agree with you about uh, that bubble scene. Um, also, my other two favorite lines from this particular episode is when Phelan, <laughs> when he said, Never shit a shitter. I don't know if I've ever heard that one. I get it. Really? Never shit a shitter. I've never heard a bullshitter. I've never heard uh, never shit a shitter. That's like oh, slightly different.
0: Yeah, it's slightly different. I've heard the never shit a shitter before. Those <laughs> like that, that that shout out to all my Dinner Springs white boys back in, in in Baton Rouge who would say shit like that. That's when you would hear shit like that. We didn't say shit like that, but they would say shit like that. So that's why I heard that, man. Yeah, I've heard that one before. That's <laughs> yeah, a good line. Never
1: shit a shitter. That was like kinda kinda new. It was always some lingo in this. Um, that I always pick up in every episode they're like oh shit I never, I never heard that before uh, we got Bunk on one cigar this episode just one one cigar one. one cigar but what? we got McNulty he, he had a respectable blood alcohol content when he showed up at His Place drunk
0: love that scene that like <laughs> that scene right there love that scene I just wanted to uh, I just wanted to thank you for what? for today you know with, with Daniels
1: you should be thanking Lester. Oh, I did. I just wanted to thank you too, Detective Greggs. No problem. Good night. That it is.
0: Love that scene. You knew McNulty was going to take a shot. McNulty has now, to take a shot. You think that was him shooting the shot? Yeah, it was totally Without shooting. Without a doubt. Yeah, it was totally what? <laughs> Yeah! Like, like, like and you know what? Kima's girl peeped it. Kima's girl said this one sad and... Confused looking white boy out there, yeah, like this motherfucker don't know which tree. Nah, you wrong, dog. Kima don't, and I, you know, and that that also speaks to something else that was a thing then. That's really not as much of a thing now. See, back in the day, sexual identity and things like that, it was there was really not a, as much respect for it. So, uh, like, a girl in college would say, oh, you know, I like girls. Or, like, even out of college would be like, you know, I'm into women. I'm a lesbian. Uh, and the homies in the hood would be like, ah, oh, man, that's just because she ain't met me yet, dog. I'm telling you. What she need is a real man. Y'all some guppies. Let us shark get in there and see what happens. Nah, dog. She doesn't man, like sharks. why does it sound like you've used that line before? You said never. that very convincingly. I've never tried it. Never. Once you define yourself to me, I accept you for you. I just want to know all about it. But, but I've never, I've, ne- I've never. But that was a thing that used to kind of go on. I'm sure there's still some like uh, yeah. realm I was like, of oh, thinking. That's yeah, you said used to. I'm like, I don't know if that's a I, used to. <laughs> I don't hear it as much anymore. I like, right. I hear it because you know, not now. There's consequences for fucking up. Then mm-hmm. it was kind of the wild wild west. So in 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 that situation, kind of with McNulty, that was like some antiquated alpha hyper male thinking that he was going to go over there and make something happen with her. Nah, man, her girl answered the door. Get the fuck out of here. What's wrong with you?
1: Well, plus, <sighs> as we've seen as a consistent theme with him in particular when it comes to his body count, which at in this show was zero, is that drunk McNulty showing up at the doorstep trying to get some is like his thing. That's like one of his go-to moves.
0: Man, drunk McNulty would have made a run at Omar. Drunk McNulty don't care. Like, drunk, like McNulty is the horniest, McNulty is one of the horniest characters in television history. <laughs> HBO had simu- had simultaneously three of the horniest characters in television history. McNulty, Tony Soprano, who oh, was horny Tony as Soprano. shit. Oh, my God. And um, then Samantha um, from, from Sex in the City. They had a horniness trifecta going on at HBO at that particular time. Three of the horniest characters ever. They liked to get it. <clears throat> well, so yeah. Well, so
1: the thing that's super interesting about pointing out those three in particular is that the horniness in the men, at least these two, is a result of their insecurity. Like Samantha was out there fucking the fuck.
0: Like, Wait, so you're gonna say, how, how, but see, I don't like what you're doing. Is sexist now? How we know <laughs> Samantha? No, no, man. No, like it's crazy. It's like so. So T- Tony Soprano, the boss of the Soprano family. Uh, McNulty uh, the, the 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 lead detective of major crimes they insecure you know but, they insecure as fuck Tony definitely but, but, that's why he was in therapy he insecure but, as hell oh oh wow now you're coming at the mental health community you have no, to know oh, no I well, oh. you turn something different you turn something different <laughs> no I'm saying like so why so why, why are they insecure because they're so horny but Samantha it, is secure see this is what happens oh, I see. I'm glad we're here this is what happens I want to hear you unpack this
1: Oh, no, because Tony, the thing was, he was in therapy because he had a lot of anxiety. He had a lot of um, obvious uh, mental health issues, some of Mm -hmm. which were a a direct result of his profession. But a lot of it was because, you know, his mother was trifling as fuck. Didn't love him. Let's be real. (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. And so he was always seeking for approval in women. And Mm -hmm. given what he did for a living, he was always looking for validation because of that insecurity that ate at him All the time. He's thinking like, I'm this gangster. I'm in charge of this. I'm in charge of that. I'm out here making moves. I'm running shit. But at the same time, he was never happy with himself. That's why he fucked everything because it was temporary validation. McNulty. It was the same shit. It's that, you know, here he is. I'm the smartest motherfucker in the room. I got this job where they shit on me every other moment when I show that I have an intellect above a fucking desk. and. (coughs) Part of the way that his outlet was banging as many women as he possibly could to make up for the gaping hole in his self-esteem. Samantha, on the other hand, was just collecting bodies because Mm -hmm. that is what made her feel good. She was embracing her agency as a woman. That's the difference. I broke that shit down.
0: Toxic Femininity is what I is what I is what you're displaying. Like you're displaying toxic femininity. I cannot believe you. I thought you were woke. This is not going to go over well with all with like toxic femininity. Like so so Samantha, we don't know. Samantha might have had daddy issues. Samantha might have had. Samantha was continuously out there. Samantha was toxic. I'm putting it out right now. I know this is a wire podcast. So I don't want to spend too much toxic. time on saying Whatever. Samantha out there. Like Smith Jarrett was Years younger than Samantha was. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, uh, this is all I'm saying. This
1: is all I'm saying. I'm gonna leave it and here. And she dropped that dude. You know why? Because he wanted at home, you know, mild mannered Samantha. And she's like, I ain't about that life. I'm about putting mm-hmm. this vagina out in this street. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm, I'm about. You,
0: be honest with you. McNulty and Tony Soprano just were victims of toxic femininity from Jamel Hill. I know. Okay. All right. Okay. (laughs) It was women that brought them down. That's what it was. Right, exactly. (laughs)
1: Interesting. Well, I mean, speaking of McNulty and I guess toxic femininity, we also, one of the new characters that is introduced in this episode is his his wife, his estranged ex-wife. or I don't don't know, I think at this point they're still separated. And just in their little interaction at the (laughs) soccer field, you're like, yep, mm -hmm, I can see exactly why that didn't work out. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Mostly McNulty's fault, by the way.
0: Right, and also this is the same episode where Kima has to admonish him for calling his wife, uh, a the c word. I don't even, I don't yeah. even. Yeah, you could say I'm not even gonna say it. Yeah. That's like the, that's like the n word for men. I'm not even gonna say it. Like it is like yeah. So he, so y- you start to kind of see, um, the breakdown of his personal life and kind of where all that stuff is coming. It's only been hinted to before this, but now we get a little bit more deeper into I, it. I it don't as know far if this is considered
1: be, betrayal of the female race or not. I've never considered that word to be that bad. I think it's an awful <laughs> word to call it, but okay. I just have never, like, it's never, mm. I don't have that visceral reaction with that word that I do other words. And I've been called it a lot, frankly. Um, yeah. But well, I just. It's just
0: a, well, how about this? It's just the beginning now that you've said this. Now, <laughs> be like, a whole lady, after this. Oh, now, uh, like, now it's going to be fake accounts popping up, uh, <laughs> popping up. Like, it, it's. Uh, I, I hope you know the fucking mustard's off the hot dog now. So like it, it, you said, it doesn't really bother you. You're no, gonna no, 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 get no, 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 no.
1: <sighs> I didn't. I just said I've never had that visible reaction. I think it's an awful word, and I wouldn't call anybody that. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if it's cultural to some degree because that's not we like a it, word it, that yeah. I heard that often. So it, it, it was wasn't just... a big
0: deal. It was the it other word, the B word. Unfortunately, yes. it's so weird. That'll it set was me big... up. The B word was the one that, but it, you know, it was in all the songs. But at the same time, it's like don't use it in real life. You know what I mean? You, you don't right. say it. Or don't be around a sister and say that if you, unless you want to uh, get a Lorena Bobbitt situation. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, like, go ahead. Go, go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry.
1: No, no, no. I was gonna say, speaking of cuss words, man, what um we had that conversation earlier about fucking motherfucker. Um, what do you think is the most versatile cuss word? It's it's clearly not the C word. <laughs> it's
0: not. Because that's one intent, one usage. Um, it's, it's crazy is that when you said that, my knee jerk was to be like, well, fuck is the much more versatile word. But well, I started thinking about it. Motherfucker is because like people say, yo, that's my motherfucker right there. Like because fuck has all of the connotations. It's got fuck you. It's got all oh, what the fuck. It's got yo, yo, man, I'm fucking with it. It's got all of those things. But then it also has the actual word. It means to fuck and have sex. I was thinking, motherfucker doesn't have that, but then motherfucker has. Look at this motherfucker here. That's my motherfucker right there. You got it. That's a motherfucking shame. Fuck you, motherfucker. Like, it's so, like, it's hard, I think, and I hate doing this. And I know that the great people at the ringer hate when I do this. I hate doing this. It's a fucking tie. It's like, I I, like It's a tie, my motherfucker. It's a it's it's a fucking tie. I like, I don't really kind of see the difference, but um, it was a great question, and at first I was, it was the knee jerk was fuck, but then motherfucker made a strong comeback. Wow, what do you think?
1: Fuck is the more versatile word, but motherfucker is my favorite word. Okay. So those are different. There's there's because I agree with you because you can use fucking so many spaces. However, mm-hmm. nothing is quite as pleasant as like using motherfucker in the right way. And, and it's right. one of the few c- cuss words that you have that you almost get more enjoyment using it in a positive way. Like, that's my motherfucker. We in yeah. this motherfucker. Like, you, you get yeah. more juice from the positivity of it as opposed to being like, that's awful motherfucker. Like, you just, you don't get the same. I mean, you get it, but it's just like, it's right. more in the positive connotation that I personally uh enjoy the word. It reminds me of... Um, Interview I did with Senator Kamala Harris uh, last year for, um, for my own podcast, my other my other podcast I should say, and mm-hmm. um, it uh, I asked her what her favorite cuss word was, and she said it starts with an M and ends with an A, <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's wow. my motherfucker, cause she yeah. don't it's motherfucker, yeah, yeah. She,
0: she yeah. could have no, got my didn't... vote on that alone. <laughs> no, what she should have said was donate some motherfucking money is what she. should <laughs>
1: That would have. That's what, also she, she, that's what she should. That's what she should. That's what
0: she should have said. Donate some motherfucking money, man. We running on fumes. Shout out to Senator Harris, man, and Maya, and Bakari. There
1: is a lot of really big file this away for later moments. I mean, the biggest mm. is this entire murder case uh, involving
0: sure.
1: Deidre Crescent. But a smaller file this away for later moment for me was when Kima's girlfriend kind of. Mm nudges her and reminds her because she's kind of slightly chastising her for missing class. Mm-hmm. And then she nudges her and said, hey, you were the one that said you wanted to do something else. It's like she can feel mm-hmm. her getting sucked back into the thing that she said that she didn't want to get sucked back into and she wanted something else. You didn't make it into class again today. You said you'd stick with it. <sighs> I'm trying. But things are hot right now. I'm doing the best I can. Mm. You say to yourself, you need to do something else. Something better for us. You (laughs) promise. And that's definitely a file this away for later moment because of what happens with their relationship later on.
0: Yeah, I definitely had that one written down. I had a couple of things written down. That's the moment. Uh, It's playful now, but we know from having watched the whole season the whole season that's going to become a very painful aspect of their relationship uh like uh, later on for sure that's going to become um a big deal uh one thing that father's later father's for later uh father's away for later is uh, uh lester's talking about uh how he got to the pawn shop unit um when lester's talking about how he got to the pawn shop unit it makes a correlation that's going to become a major theme in The Wire going forward, which is actual full-throated, uh, full-hearted work never, ever, 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 ever uh, saves you. Lester tells McNulty later on, the job will not save you. And that's something that we learned through that story. When Lester tells the story of him actually <clears throat> not wanting to Acquiesce to one of the bosses who wanted to make a deal with uh, somebody. Well what happened to Lester is Lester was on the case. The fence that w- that was going to be involved in that case was the son of some bigwig over at the paper. Somebody at the uh, in, in the police department wanted to do a favor for that guy. Didn't want the fence involved uh, in the in the case. Lester, for whatever reason, said fuck you. Said fuck you. Did it anyway. Thirteen years in the pawn shop unit. The job won't save you. And that's and 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 even like doing the job in the most sincere, pure-hearted way won't save you. As a matter of fact, it'll probably fuck you. That's a theme that's going to continue in the wire. It's going to continue to where the politics get involved in the police work, to where uh, the processes get involved in in the results. And that's one of the first time that Lester says, "Hey, I did all of this right, and no one." fucking cared and he's like it's going to be the same way for you mcnulty it's going to be exactly the same thing we see that over and over again in the show
1: and that's actually a great representation of real life because it's that like that in so many different jobs and a lot of the jobs we've all personally held where it didn't matter at the end of the day when we either left the job or whether it be on our terms or theirs is that no matter how competent you are, no matter how hardworking you are, all these other things, you can be those things and you do it sometimes with the expectation that at some point somebody's going to be like, great job, you saved the day, this and that. You're not looking for validation but you would think at some point somebody would recognize your contribution to it yeah. and in most cases, they don't. You know, And right. it's like, especially in something like police work where everything you do is dramatically and drastically impacting somebody's life to know mm. that there will be no extra reward or nothing else that will, you know, be your sort of savior because at the end of the day, all that work, everything you pour into that shit ain't gonna matter. And yeah. <clears> that's, <throat> a, no, that's a great file, uh, file us away uh, for a later moment because, you know, Lester already sees what will be McNulty's end. And he's he just knows. trying to tell him, hey man, be, be ready. When it's your time and they ask you where you wanna go, Make sure you tell him some shit you actually don't want to go to, right. and you can you can wind up fixing the situation better than he did. All right, finally, Van, who yes. won
0: the episode? The wire won. The wire the physical itself.
1: actually, yeah. The, the physical, wire tap.
0: actual the wiretap won the episode. <laughs> uh, the the for the first time we sort of understand the importance of the surveillance of the major crimes unit. Uh, you know, there were a lot of great parts, a lot of great sort of uh, uh, aspects of this episode, but what one um, was the one thing that's going to unite all of these cops. And the one thing that's going to drive the show for the wire one, that was the thing. And, and, and that's kind of the the deal that's moving forward. This is the only, this was the, and I, and I, a lot of times uh, in this episode, Things were so evenly killed that I struggled to kind of get a winner. Um, But when I thought about it, what was the most important thing that fucking happened uh, this episode? And for me, just to let you guys know, listening, my idea of who won the episode vacillates from who actually was the winner. Like when I say Press Belusky won that episode, like a couple of, that's because he just came on like fucking gangbusters. It was like, he, you know, you know what I mean? But in this particular case, i'm I'm gonna look at it from a little bit more of a thematic point and a plot driven point. And I think the wire won this episode
1: <clears throat> no, that's a that's a good choice. um because you know, you have to look at it in a big picture way. I mean, we could we could very easily at the end of any episode be like, oh, well, McNulty won because yeah you know, he was able to finally get his wiretap or this person won. But I think we have to look at it from um a much deeper angle. that's the whole point of this podcast is what we're taking these deep dives into the things that matter on, on the wire, both the small details and the big ones. For me, Deidre Crescent won this episode. Oh, that's and a great
0: fucking choice.
1: It was her. Uh, and that's because, obviously, um, it, it, it showed an a interesting kind of dynamic, is that she was somebody who died rather unceremoniously and obviously violently. But yeah. in death, she will be the most useful vehicle and dragging everybody down. Somebody who was supposed to be forgotten about, who, by the way she died, nobody gave a fuck about. And so she winds up being kind of the ultimate example that karma is still deeply in this bitch. And so yeah. um, I think she, despite the fact all we saw, unfortunately, is her dead and topless. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: um, she was the one uh, that won this episode because the, the ripple effects from her depth um, is, is basically what powered kind of this first season
0: in in many respects. So Probably the most one. important character in the show that never spoke a word.
1: Mm. And was never alive for that matter. And was never alive. <laughs> and was never alive. <laughs> it was never that's even cool. alive. Not even didn't speak. It's mm-hmm. plenty of characters you see in, in movies and TV shows that don't speak but they at least move around. She just at least they were there. animated. Yes, Right, exactly. <laughs> right. She just laid there topless as they say. Mm-hmm. All right, that's going to do it for us. Um, join us on the next episode, as we dive deeper into season one of The Wire, the next episode called "The Pager." Here on Way Down in the Hole. So until next time, y'all be easy. Keep watching The Wire and keep listening to us.
0: Nowhere and leave it to Beaverland. Are you taking me? I'm late for something. I'll drop you after on the way back downtown. What's it late for? Soccer.